0: It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow and feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 261 of the Simply Fit Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Thomas Midgley. Thomas is a behavior and cognitive psychotherapist, a specialized eating disorder dietician, and director of the Body Image Treatment Clinic based on Harley Street in London. Today's episode is a personal favorite of mine. Tom offers some incredible wisdom on self-esteem, self-confidence, and mindset that I've really not heard of before. If you found yourself in a battle with your inner critic, have tendencies towards perfectionism, or can't seem to get out of the mindset of constant comparison to those around you in the real world or online, then this episode is for you. In this episode, you can expect to learn how you can thrive and reach your goals whilst offering yourself compassion instead of criticizing yourself in the process, how to navigate the world of social media to maintain your mental well-being, along with Tom's perspective on whether he's optimistic about the improvements of our collective well-being and what we can do to move in the right direction, along with so much more. So without further ado, Thomas Midgley. Thomas Midgley, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Uh, Really good, really good. And thank you for having me, Elliot.
0: The pleasure is mine. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. I heard you on another podcast, which really spiked my curiosity, so I'm excited to dive into it today. But for those who might have not come across yourself before, can you explain a little bit about yourself, who you are and what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, my name's Tom Midgley. I am the founding director at the Body Image Treatment Clinic on Harley Street in London. I'm also a behavior and cognitive schema and compassion focused psychotherapist and eating disorders dietitian. What that gobbledygook basically means is I'm a trained CBT therapist, which means that you kind of use a computer analogy in that sometimes people present and what you really need to do is more of a a factory setting reboot and kind of more manualized CBT or CBT kind of does that as long as the factory reset the individuals have is pretty free from bugs and highly effective. But around 60%, or oh, sorry, 40% of the population you take them back to factory settings and what what you take them back to isn't something that's very pleasant for that individual there may be and it's then you kind of use other types of treatments such as schema therapy and a compassion focused therapy which really look at kind of attachments, evolutionary psychology, and really it's more of a kind of a fixing bugs or even a, a reprogram or, you know, so you're kind of not just dealing with recent here and now symptoms, you're really dealing with some of the historical underlying causes of those elements. So that's kind of roughly what those, that called means. And I'm also a, a specialist eating disorders dietitian, which, which is kind of the gold standard in nutrition, but my speciality is very much within the field. Of eating disorders now with that profession.
0: Sure. Perfect. And I think we're going to dive deeper on that in just a moment, but I want to go back to the factory settings. I've never thought about it before from the perspective that CBT could take you back to a place when you do have a factory reset button that might not be as productive as we might think, because obviously the new software that goes in has to be in line with where we want to go, right? So, what's the difference between those who get the <laughs> helpful software update and maybe those who are uh, left their own devices and might download a few anti, like yeah, a few viruses along the way to keep the computer analogy?
1: I mean, it's that is a big question, and we can delve into that a little bit. Fundamentally, our personalities are born out of the combination of our genetics and our early childhood experiences, uh, particularly the first six to eight years, and it's within there that we do. De- we develop our sense of intrinsic confidence. Now, there are certain things that all human beings need in order to thrive and certain things not to happen for those to thrive. People tend to focus on, you know, it's easy to see when someone has had something traumatic occur. It's easy to see, oh, that's why they're struggling. But actually, it's the stuff that the unmet needs, which tend to be much more common. And people don't normally know that they're missing until you can actually assess and see that. And it's really the combination of the two that leads someone to struggle typically psychologically or with mental health. So you've got some people that might go through appalling trauma, but are relatively resilient based on their experiences and in part their genetics, but uh, a lot of those early experiences. uh, Whereas you've got others that might go through kind of what we call small T traumas, which are kind of more challenging life events, but Those life events are enough to overwhelm those individuals because of what resources they have available to deal with difficult emotions and difficult situations. It's within those early years and that we're kind of looking at a lot. And I'll touch more on that because it really is a way of kind of helping us understand. So, the way I tend to explain this a little bit is that if you have all of those needs met in childhood, and really a lot of those needs are based around a childhood where individuals are taking a focused interest in you as a person outside of achievement so taking the time to value and help you feel valued and understood outside of whether you win lose do well at school or not ask your opinions talk about emotions and feelings so that you feel intrinsically valued in spite of what you do and just for being you. That's the cornerstone, probably the primary cornerstone of what creates our intrinsic sense of value. If we have that, then we are incredibly robust because what we know is that any difficulty we have, we can turn to our team and know that they have our back. They've always had our back. They're open to talking about and understanding and want to help us flourish and grow and understand the difficulties. And it's not set around any achievement. You've got to be the best or good. It's just innately there. So it's like walking around with your team. And as long as you have that, then, and a lot of that's born out of also feeling included in your, it's a tribal, it's, you're, you're part of a tribe, you're included, but that's really in our culture, our community, our, and the broader sense. So you've got also issues that you might have that within the home, but then let's imagine a, a real common one we deal with is, let's say, second generation migrants, where they're stuck between the values, cultural values of their family and being pulled towards the cultural values of their peers and getting torn between them and feeling pulled between these two different worlds, as it seems, and that sense of where do I belong? So that question, well, I do feel here but not there, and then almost having to turn their back on one or trying to walk that line. So then even though you might have it, but there are events or factors that turn us against or can shatter that sense of support. And then when we don't have that, sense of our team have got our back and we feel that enables us to thrive and that intrinsic confidence what we might talk more about is what you get instead which tends to be quite a potent inner critic so instead of your team supporting you you tend to have your critic on your back telling you how rubbish you are or that you don't fit in or they don't really like you or everyone's against you or they're just treating you because of your gender sex sexuality or your whatever manifestation
0: that takes Mm, it's fascinating and those primary years so valuable to us from is it like an uh, adaptive thing from an evolutionary standpoint is that fundamentally where it's coming from is that why it's so important for us to have that support of our tribe because it seems very it makes sense when you look at it rationally but also at the same time it's like you've got that family safety if you've got that home safety it's like you're not going to be left behind anymore like you're not a victim to just being part of the tribe or or potentially being left behind for the lions otherwise. So it seems adaptive from an evolutionary perspective, but maybe today in our modern day, maybe not so advantageous as it might have used to be. Oh no, it's
1: the opposite. What we've got is, you can always look at it There's a nice study, you can always look at the Romanian orphanages in the 90s. I'll explain just some basics of psychology that's kind of helpful to kind of understand. We call it a three systems model. And one is that in terms of evolution, we all have an active threat system. Our active threat system is what people kind of think of as distressing emotions, typically. Things like anxiety, sadness, shame, guilt, anger. And we've evolved these to act like a big stick to make us react to threat in a way to have a survival advantage. E.g., if you're standing in a road and a bus is driving towards you, your anxiety hits you like a stick until you get out of the way. Those that don't get out the way, don't have a survival survival disadvantage, and they they don't get to live or pass their genes on. We also have a secondary system, which we call the resource system or drive system. And that's where we kind of almost have a carrot. And that's where we're incentivized to do certain things to give us a sense of purpose. And if you imagine, historically, those that get up early purposefully to find resources, find food, find shelter, make friends, find a mate, are going to have an evolutionary survival advantage over those that don't. So, we also have that, and that's driven by the sense of we get a sense of extreme euphoria on purpose. So, what gets us up to do stuff? What gets us to the gym? What gets us to work? That sense of thriving. Yes, I'm purposeful. That's that affiliate, that kind of drive system. Now, most, uh, our culture really focuses on those two and almost says one is good and bad. But in reality, there's a third system, which we're talking about now, which is more important, which is the affiliative system. If you have a child and you give, reduce their sense of threat and you know, feed them and nourish them and give them an education, but you give them no sense of community or value outside of that, then like the remaining orphanages, you end up with a very damaged individual. Because what we really need is the thing with that drive system, most of it is external validation. It's competing, comparing, how do I compare to how I want to be, which is how do I compare to the aspirational ideals of my culture? How do I compare to my peers? What's my grade? And it's very... We call it self esteem. It's really the main element of self esteem. We only feel it when we're winning and setting higher and higher standards. The second we achieve or we don't meet those standards, we then collapse back into that sense of threat. Our intrinsic sense of value comes externally to that. And it's really that sense of have I learned to feel valued, loved, and respected just for being me within my culture and my community? Which is why, as our culture now, we have this huge focus, which is brilliant on why aren't we treating everybody? part of the same why are we pushing people out saying you're different or we don't want you or you know and it's within that because we thrive you know we need that sense of uh, safety and security that is born out of those early years it doesn't just stay in those early years we will we will seek that in life now companionship finding our group that we feel we're in to generate our sense of confidence and value outside of the need to thrive and strive so we need we need them I in mean, balance is the crucial element if you take out the need to drive thrive, that doesn't work either because you're then between just you know, i will going to go into this you're going to look at some politics or what happens if you try and take away everybody's need you know to strive against each other and try and plateau everybody that causes its own
0: particular issues yeah, I think we've seen that played out in a few uh, countries I and mean, we won't go into politics here, but I think we can all agree that's probably not the most productive route forward. And with that being said, yeah, coming back to the tribal side of things. So if someone hasn't grown up with that, would you say the answer is to find their community? Is it as simple as that? Can it be? I mean, sometimes the most complex questions seem to have the most simple solution. So is it just a case of finding my tribe? yes and no there's a couple
1: of key cool things if someone is stuck in a I'll, let me explain if what happens if that's missing so basically either it doesn't develop fully that's internal sense of connection and feeling part In these, it's almost unquestionably throughout childhood if that either doesn't develop effectively or it does but something shatters it because you can imagine it, it develops effectively and then say there's what kind of a big you know somebody's you know, feels great and then They hit puberty and then let's say they're bullied around something around their appearance, something like that, or something shatters their sense of acceptance. And what happens within that is that because of that reaction to those events, what they then might do is start pushing away and isolating themselves. And that's where people then become vulnerable to elements around perfectionism. Because how do you manage your sense of threat uh, when half of your self confidence is gone? So if you think confidence in two parts, One part is your confidence comes from an intrinsic sense of value. I'm valued as a person within my community for just being me uh, as a a kind of a a human being like everyone else. And then our other half of our value comes from the competing, comparing kind of classic self-esteem element, which, you know, it might be honest has a... A slight, we can't hide from the fact that there's a slight sinister element to it, which is we're really, a lot of the time we're generating self-esteem by positively comparing ourselves to others, you know, needing, other, needing to push others down or compare favourably to others to feel good. So there is, you know, we can't hide from that fact, but the reality is we need both of those. If you take out, if you disconnect one, the only way we can feel good is to strive. So what that then manifests is individuals who can't stop. They have to keep unrelenting standards. They have to keep setting the standards higher and higher or stay busy. Can't stop. Can't relax. Can't sit down. Have to stay busy. Have to stay active or obsessionality or anxiety. The mind has to stay busy or the second you stop. and um, you know, We think it's boredom that then we hate, but a lot of the time it's not. It's actually connecting what's really underneath and what's missing in our lives, The what's emptiness or the bit that's there. So we just have the only way to then survive is to keep striving and keep busy. The problem with that is that we burn out because both our drive system drives our central nervous system and our threat system also fires up our central nervous system, which without an affiliative system, which is that sense of connection, one way of looking at the two sides of self esteem and confidence and worth is that one is excitatory and the other is soothing. So, like if you spend a good time with a friend, there are exciting elements, but what you, it's like, it's soothing happiness, let's imagine. Whereas you can do exciting stuff, which is excitable. If you take out that soothing element, then you've got no way to calm down. So what that means people vulnerable to is other strategies that numb, cut off and get us away from threat. And so I've said those that are busy, 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 they have to find a way of then without a healthy way of cutting off. And that then leaves them vulnerable to procrastination, depression, binge eating, substance abuse, self-harm to... Uh, is part of that, avoidance strategies that can lead to that, and depression. We need to think, we think about depression as a disease, but it's actually an evolutionary-derived strategy to survive. You know, I won't go into it too much now, but so actually it's a way of switching off from that busy, 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 scared, busy, 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 and then needing a way of shutting down. So a lot of what we deal with is individuals who have, let's say, thrived to some extent, which you might have elite athletes or leaders in business, or but what slowly happens is they develop these unhelpful ways of managing that can lead into substance abuse or binge eating or procrastination or this kind of all or nothing. When they're not winning, they, they then collapse and it all falls apart because it's all, in essence, the foundations it's built on are not solid. And without that solid foundation, yeah, you can keep striving. But For those, if it's coming from a pace of fear and threat, then when it stops, you're only going to then end up in a very dark place. And I, my own personal experiences of this, and what you're trying to help people to do is, if you can build up this other set of structures, it makes them incredibly resilient. Because when then things don't go your way, as opposed to hitting rock bottom, you hit the middle. You hit a middle point, which is where actually you're able to kind of, because you have developed that more intrinsic sense of value, you're not then worthless when you're not successful. You're just that you know, unsuccessful in that pursuit. And then you're able to then grow and learn from that much more quickly than hitting rock bottom and ending up in a dark place and having to get yourself out of that and then straight back into you know, you need to be the best again. And so it's about building resilience through looking at that Particular And the kind of treatments that are currently most effective at doing that are probably compassion-focused therapy and schema-focused therapy that are like really targeting that kind of developmental attachment, intrinsic sense of worth and value uh, that's essential if we're going to, to, to consistently thrive, uh, not just uh, thrive in portions of our life and in, it in certain areas.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating you say that, and I'm interested to hear your experience with the clients you've worked with. Because I've always had this back and forth for myself about the value of the inner critic, the value of choosing the stick over the carrot. Because if you do look at the most highlighted sets of individuals, the athletes, the musicians, the people who thrive and perform at their best, they're all you know applauded with all of this praise, and then obviously things maybe turn a little bit south later down in down the line. But you know, you'll have people like Michael Jordan who will you know reflect on his life and says he regrets it's nothing. But if you watch his latest documentary, it looks pretty miserable. So it's one of those things. It's like, do you think that that's um, a more effective strategy, even if it ends up with uh, a long-term consequences? Because I'm always like, well, I think if I'm honest, based on my experience, I think the stick, the you know, the inner critic being incredibly harsh actually does lead to you working a little bit harder and striving a little bit more than the compassionate. That's at least been my experience until this point. But I also know at the same time, rationally speaking, it doesn't sound sustainable whatsoever. So can you break that down for me and then give me the answer to the question of my past few years?
1: <laughs> it's a great question because it's probably the main thing you end up dealing with in in a, with a lot of people. and that's because a lot of people will have had positive well they think they've had positive experience from their inner critic this is where we get a tiny bit more complex, but hopefully kind of roll with it a little bit so we develop an inner critic typically out of two in my experience two main domains one either our experience of criticism and that might not be at us let's imagine our our primary role model is is highly self-critical let's imagine you've got a mum or a dad who is you know, because like, oh, I hate how I look, or I'm on diets, or I'm not good at this. So you've got like example one. Example two, that, you know, your role models, it might be parents, it might be friends, or your environment is highly critical of others. Let's say fat shaming or critical of people that don't try hard enough, or there's a lot though, pervasive criticism, or at worst, people are actually criticizing and attacking you. If you experience it consistently, any of that, you're gonna develop that internal structure in your mind because. Helpful to touch on another basic element of psychology is that when we're born, we really we don't have one mind; we have multiple minds. When we're born, we tend to have one mind, which is highly egocentric. Which is, you know, a child is just focused on getting their needs met. I need to give me food, scream, give me attention, help me sleep, and the parents are the external or the pa- caregivers, are the external element that helps soothe, calm, control, you know, protect. You know, the point of adolescence is we internalize. These external support structures, teachers, peers, parents, uncles, aunties, siblings, that creates our own capacity to then manage ourselves. And then at the end of adolescence, we need to kind of separate from our parents to consolidate that. Now, those early experiences of what our culture and community environment like then determine what our minds are like. We don't have any we have limited free will in this. But that then, so within that, if, it, if we grow up in a highly critical and it might not be directed at us, then we're going to internalize that and develop that. And then the problem with that crisis it only will generate misery fundamentally. So we are either then with that steep into an inescapable depression or we will fight back. And how we fight back is we develop a structure which we kind of all have, which I described as that drive system, which you can kind of reflect as a controller. So it's almost this, a separate part that then says I'm going to achieve. I'm going to strive. I'm not. If my critic says I'm rubbish, I'm going to prove it wrong. And, I'm, and I'll show what in maths I'm not rubbish. I'm going to focus on maths. And they're running, they're not that, And you actually build this other structure that then drives. But the problem is, is it's never enough because you keep striving. And it, so it's not the inner critic that's the bit that... So I work with a lot of people that are highly successful. And they're like, well, I don't want to give it up because it's my superpower. What you have them realize is, no, 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 that's not the superpower. It's what you built in, in response to it that becomes the superpower. What we want to do is... And the problem is, is that it's not a superpower unless you can turn it off and a lot of these individuals can't turn it off they have it either full blown on and then when it doesn't work the inner critic then batters the hell out of them and then so they try and escape that and as long as they keep living in that world you know, and then they keep busy obsessed or focused on whatever form it is then in their minds they're in control and they're they're successful but in a weird way it's not that they're not it's just it's a plaster covering up you know it's a plaster and a painkiller covering up an infection is that yeah it's doing it's stopping the pain it's doing a good job in some respects it's not actually treating the underlying issue that's the mechanism so a lot of people are fearful of giving up their inner critic because they think they'll lose that superpower and actually what you help them realize is that we're not just getting rid of the inner critic we're actually upgrading it and modifying it with from their own experience what gets the best out of them so you can think about was it the nasty critical teacher that got the best out of you and lots of people experiences those i have a lot or was it a different teacher that got the best out of you and normally it's that Oh, no, it was the teacher that was hard, made me hard on me, accountable, but they took the time to get me and they wanted to help me and they wanted the best. So you're trying to replace it with something that's not soft and fluffy and woolly by any stretch. It's something that keeps you accountable, something that's going to tell you when straight, when it's not, when you're not putting the time in, something's not going to let you off the hook. And what I imagine, let's say for you, Elliot, as a personal trainer, is you will be probably modeling that. You won't be modeling, you know, you feel that Canadian Critics great. So you know, with your clients, you stand there and go, look, that shit, your shit, unless, you know, don't bother coming back unless you're going to make me feel good about me, seriously. Or do you do a different strategy? And it's, it's not, in essence, attack and criticism that gets the best out of people. It's objectivity, it is accountability, it is understanding them, it's kindness, and it's a balance between those domains. And that's what you're trying to help someone grow within them to help them thrive. Uh, and most people fear that you'll take it away and leave them with some wet flannel like, oh, everything's great. Oh, you're fabulous. No, it will be fine. Just roll with it. Or cheerleader. Yeah, you're great. You're great. Oh, it's going to be brilliant. No, it's, uh, it's about helping develop what gets the best out of you that enables you to thrive and building that. To kind of move away to something a bit more complex, it's also that that you want to build. Because when you want to help people who've been through difficult situations and trauma and challenging life events, The problem you've got is that unless you build that first, and this is the mistake a lot of clinicians and therapists make, when you just take them back to dealing with that trauma, they end up dealing with it with their own inner critics and their own what they've developed out of it. So you're putting them back in a scenario that is highly traumatic for them, and you're leaving them there with this inner critic that's beating the hell out of them. And unless you change that, First, which is a lot of what you're doing within Compassion Focused therapy, is you're building a structure so that when they then have the courage to go and face their challenges in life, they're there with their team now. So they're taking on that right. And if they're there with their team, that intrinsic confidence, I know I'm living a life that is in line with my values. I can feel that within me. I can grow through that. And it's not they're there with their... In a critic to say, yeah, it was all your fault. Yeah, you deserve that to happen. Yeah, if you hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. And, you know, and feeling that huge shame and element that kind of are intrinsic to that. So it's kind of back to that. I don't know, we were talking about that computer analogy, probably gone a bit deeper, but hopefully you can get a bit of a sense of uh, what I mean by factory settings. If that factory settings, you're there and you, you have that through early childhood and adolescence, you had your team and that's been unquestioned. So when you struggle, you automatically you go to people then if you've got that, then you're fine. If you're someone that struggles and what you do is go in on yourself and you don't tell people and you try and deal with it yourself, then more often than not, then you're probably more aligned with those and you've got a powerful inner critic and you're probably more in that other camp, to, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating. I've never heard someone talk about, because it is always, oh, you need to go back to the very beginning, find out the root cause and, you know, go deal with those demons. But you forget that it's not just you going there with your rational adult mind, it's that you're going there with your inner critic and you're probably, yeah, using the set of skills you've got today, but then you also trigger the little boy or little girl that was emotionally damaged at that time. So you've got a whole party of people who are not fit to deal with that situation, right?
1: And that's exactly it. We like to think we're the full wisdom and adulthood that we have available to us. But actually, you know, an easy way to check in with a client on who's actually appraising what's going on for you is to kind of ask them, you know, if if it was a loved one in that situation, what would you want them to do? How would you support them? What would you advise? And compare that to what you're advising you. I mean, I do it as a dietitian when I get people to develop a, a diet plan for themselves. First thing I get them to develop a diet plan for a goddaughter or fictitious or, or their own daughter or someone they care about or son. Who is that? Let's say an adolescent. And they'll go, Oh, yes, for breakfast, I'll give them this and I'll do this, 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 And go, Great, great. And that's what you would do. And the timings and right, fantastic. And that helps me assess somebody's nutritional knowledge. And then I ask them, Right, I want you to do a diet plan for you and write that down. Oh, I want to breakfast and uh, I want to do that. And yeah, and then I'm going to be carb free all the rest of the day. And then I'm going to do this. You're like, Right. Why? <laughs> and because it, for the person they care, they've used their value, they realize, well, oh, because I set different standards for me or because of this, this and this. And it's, they're not, their wisdom and has just gone straight out the window. And it's another part of them that with different motives and different intentions that really aren't helpful in line with their values that are there. And then you try and get them to bridge that gap, right? Why is that difference? And where do we start? So actually getting them to develop it. And if there are gaps in their insight and knowledge, then you just deal with that. That helps people then move forward. So you kind of work within that format, work with, with them as opposed to a teacher role, which in my experience, I kind of moved away from a long time ago for different reasons. It's
0: really interesting because if you find that the majority of the time they have the answers within them. Like you said, you just need to apply the context to someone else that they care about. I heard that quote a while ago that sat with me. I was like, treat yourself like a friend that you're aiming to help. And if you start to do that, it's like your paradigm shifts entirely. And it's, and it's strangely as simple as that. And I assume that's where compassion-based, compassion-focused therapy comes in. You mentioned schema therapy as well, which I've not heard too much about. I have heard a lot of CBT. I've done CBT as well. I'm intrigued to hear what that next step looks like because it looks like CBT, back to factory settings. And then obviously upgrading the software is the compassion-based stuff. So if you could run through that, that'd be amazing. I can do. I am being a little
1: bit simplistic with it if there's cbt you can kind of also with a small c which is kind of your standard manualized treatment which is kind of let's say back to factory settings so I said. but within cbt a so much broader cbt more broadly is looking at a treatment that is fits in certain elements one it has to be evidence-based evidence-informed which means you work in typically in chunks and then you check are you actually being effective we're not just you know and we set out what we're trying to achieve within the treatment you're then looking at Also, other elements is collaborative, so it's about empowering the person to have insight into what developed and maintained their issues. And there are other, within that collaboration, other elements, there are other kind of elements that make it CBT. And that means it can be dealt with not just, and within that, then you can deal with some of the underlying stuff as well, because you deal with present symptoms and then you deal with the underlying elements where it relates e.g. you don't just ask someone about and go into weeks of therapy about the death of their dog if it's having absolutely no impact on the present you're kind of looking at the present and then if there is events historically that once you've brought change typically then you're looking at those historical events schema therapy put it into a context is something we've almost touched on in that schemas are kind of almost like again we'll use a computer analogy to help Are kind of like apps or programs and that we shift into particular versions of ourselves that we learn early in life, that, are adap- that we learn are adaptable early in life to manage that scenario. And our mind automatically shifts loads of times through the day between these different versions of ourselves. None of them are fake and false. They're just enhanced or reduced. Time. So, for example, when I'm at work, I'm, I'm worked on. Now, what, within that, I talk in a particular way. The proximity I stand to people is further than any other situation. I'm non-tactile. I don't, I uh, just feel that's just a, a safer way for me to be within working with the clients I work with. And I work within a particular way of being. If I leave work and go to the pub and meet a friend, I'm straight uh, straight in for the hug. I'm, my proximity's right next to them. My mannerisms would change. You know, where did, you know, and I've shifted schema. I won't know I've done that, but I will. I'll shift from one version of me into another. And you could argue to work tom comes from classroom tom yes miss two plus two is four and maybe pubs a bit more like playground running around it yeah, and we adapt within that now the difficulty is that if our need if, if we have certain needs and not met through our early childhood we develop certain schemas to adapt so example might be if i if i am let's say if i'm bitten by a dog and then become scared of dogs what might happen is that whenever i'm around dogs now as an adult i will then become the version of me that learned to manage that when I was a child. And that means I would feel if I was 10, I'll feel like a 10 year old. My whole body will change and I will then, you know, feel in that way again. I'll feel overwhelmed. And I might then develop certain strategies or responses. Well, let's imagine it was somebody beat me up in that in that context and so when so- something reminds my mind of that situation i'm going to switch into that schema i will then learn to adapt so what i might then do in situ i might develop an avoidance component to that which if i certain type of people that my mind picks up and a lot of this is done at a subconscious level and i'll switch into that i'll then be avoidant of them because of that person. i might then adapt in another way also to compensate so what i might do is because i feel vulnerable i might start steroids and pumping iron to feel big. Or I might try to walk around looking double hard and buy a big dog, you know, to try and compensate so people don't want to attack me. Sadly, the, you know, and this might be adaptable at some point in my life. Otherwise I wouldn't necessarily do that. Problem with is that as we grow older, what we might find is if I did use those strategies, what we might find is that most people avoid me and I might learn that actually people are untrustworthy. And then the people that do engage me think they're even harder with bigger dogs and they want to fight. And it just reconfirms my point there into my schema that you can't trust people and you need to be strong and hard. And you end up with these maladaptive schemas. And I've, kind of, I've done an extreme version there, but possibly not that extreme for a lot of individuals that are not. Uh, the adversity we go through and our sense of support and other elements within that then form the basis of how we respond in certain scenarios. And what you are looking at in schema therapy is you're looking at how people respond in different scenarios, what version of them comes to the fore. and well, in essence, you're trying to find what people's minds do, have learned to do in the past, and what do they want it to do going forward? Is it the same? And if it's different, then you're helping somebody grow in a direction that then enables them to, to then change that way of being. So if you're responding in certain situations in a way that you're not, you'd like to change, then we identify that, understand its origins most of the time. It doesn't always have to be that way. And then we tackle it, and we tackle it in several different ways. One, we use imagery so that you can, in a more safe way, controlled environment you can play out situations and and practice how you want to be how you respond with your team if we need, if that's required and you build that up first managing your inner critic if that's required and then practicing that and then you then do exactly and you practice that in built up situations in real life and it's exactly what you do when working with elite athletes so if i was working with an elite athlete who was is let's say kept struggling kept losing finals what you would then practice doing is going through imagery is actually helping them go through different imagery-based scenarios where they practice different situations where they would come back and manage those different scenarios. And they'd practice it thousands and thousands of times in their head. So when actually it happens in real life, they're able to follow a path that they've done a thousand times. So they've won a thousand tennis finals before they've actually, through all different adversity, before they actually end up going into the final and actually managing those scenarios. So it's adaptable in different ways. But Fundamentally, whoever you, whether you're someone who struggles with mental health issues or not, it's still a way of assessing where your strengths lies, where your vulnerability lies, and then help build on your strengths, but also work on your vulnerabilities to keep you moving in a value based direction. Because the bit that most we don't realize is that our, most of our strategies for managing life as an adult were developed with the insight and wisdom and experiences of a child. And if you were lucky and they were highly adaptable because you became sociable and trusting, confident, and element. And they will then do fantastic analysis. that. not a lot that needs to be modified. But if you don't have that, then, you know, you're using strategies that might need to be, again, computer analogy. You might need to update your ISO or whatever the equivalent model is in other, other things. But and that's what you're fundamentally doing with that. Compassion-focused therapy is really an element of that where you are building that working on the version of you you're growing towards. And it's looking at how do I get the best out of me? Who do I want to be and what does that look like? And you're building that and working on that very much within that model. And the, and the models, in some respects, cross over quite a, very, in a similar way. You, know, you can use a lot of imagery to kind of build that sense of intrinsic value where that's missing. Managing shame in a criticism is, is what it's developed and focused for. Uh, the issue with it is that a lot of people have an issue with the term compassion. It's quite misunderstood. Compassion at its core first means facing distress and feelings albeit that with others or ourselves. So fundamentally, it takes courage where our brains are, have evolved to avoid threat and find the fastest way to run away. And back the, we talked about the threat, you know, the, the distress big stick. But what you've actually got to do is face that big stick, look at the big stick and <laughs> actually manage that and go, ah, you're not being helpful uh, here. Face that threat and then learn to then, how do I thrive in this? And move forward so in a weird way it's off the opposite of what most people think which is it will let me off the hook if i'm compassionate or it'll be soft it'll be fluffy a lot of the time it's certainly none of those it's normally doing the hard thing for ourselves or for others you know being that version being that teacher we kind of almost talked about for others and ourselves which is it's hard to tell people objectively or discuss when they may have not done as well as you might have thought. How do you do that in a way that helps them grow and isn't just easy and just, you know, critical and attacking? So it's compassion, you know, within that you're building the, that, that element that makes you the best version of you uh, and who you want to be. So a lot of it does come from the individual. You know, there are differences in what direction people want to go and what values or what they want to achieve within life and how they want to balance that between that and achievement. It might be
0: quite a long winded answer, but
1: hopefully that might be helpful.
0: No, absolutely. And it just sounds like we're just trying to get to the place of being the most well-rounded individual. And speaking of internal apps and then going to potential real external apps. I've noticed that you haven't got much of a presence on social media. I'm very intrigued about that from a personal standpoint, because I can imagine all of these things in terms of building our values, building our self-esteem, and also the impact of our environment as well. And a lot of our environment is digital. It's not just in the work setting. It's not just in the pub at the moment. It's obviously online as well. So I'm intrigued first with the question is, is why you are not so present on social media and what your reasons personally behind that? And secondly, what impact is that having on us? And are there any practical ways in which we can make sure that we minimize the potential adverse effects that social media can have?
1: We take the first one, dipped my toe into social media. I had someone who was working with us and for us. We then took a role within that. The challenges I had was, I mean, the reason developed the, the body image treatment clinic is that The focus really is to help people build self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence, manage shame and disempowerment, particularly with when, especially when it's around body image focus. So, as I kind of touched on, it's a lot about managing both inner critics, but external critics and bullies. So, people in real life, you know, not be living with people that are bullying them. They might be at work, have colleagues or staff. A lot of people, you know, that's day-to-day experiences, or it might be historical elements within that, or it's internalized. So. A lot of our work is about managing that, but also managing that over-controller where people struggle with being, you know, not too busy, too perfectionist, where that has then led to damaging elements. So we kind of delivered it out of that. So the main real focus is, you know, it's actually helping individuals. main issue over the last few years is then, especially under COVID, the difficulty was this. We've, as a clinic, been incredibly busy, and we've at times struggled to meet demand. Now, what i wanted to do, and the difficulty is with clinicians and face-to-face, is that it's, it's not cheap. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's difficult within that. So it's like, how do you make it more cost-effective? So part of me was, well, I wanted to use social media as a way of engaging individuals and just trying to, basically, how do I help as many people as I can possible in a way that's cost-effective? The difficulty I found straight off the bat was what people were engaging in, uh, in large amounts, was that they weren't ready for change. A lot of it was about individuals seeking validation for their struggles so a lot of it was about validation and venting so the posts that were popular what a lot of the other individuals were doing were just on a regular basis just putting out content about difficulties and challenges in relation to life and their own experiences and having lots of people like that and then venting their own particular issues there wasn't a lot of space for actually helping people develop or work with insight or change or support so i realized that the problem i then had was then authenticity i've been through my own struggles and adversity but is that helpful as a clinician to then put that all through that really they want actually people that are experiencing their own issues in the here and now and they want to hear about their recovery or they want some you know within that and i struggled then with putting content i didn't want to put any content that was inauthentic that i didn't fully believe in and you know and was either heartfelt or i knew would be incredibly helpful so we were trying to engage people and see where that would go and realize that actually it's not a format where we were going to be able to effectively help people without putting a massive amount of time and effort into it for probably minimal amounts of actually being able to help people. So what I've actually put my energies into the last couple of years is I'm trying to I've been developing an audiovisual treatment package, fundamentally a book that helps with a lot about managing potent many individuals in a critic managing that over control and striving elements so that can make, they can learn to regulate that and turn that on and off to their advantage and and particularly then focus on body image when people struggle with their body image either because they're too focused on it being amazing for them or the other way it's because the problem with with body image, like I talk, about, it's a double-edged sword. The more you love and focus on your body, the more you're going to loathe it when it's not where you want it to be. So it's the amount of energy you commit to it is going to be proportionate to the issues you have when it's not where you want it to be. So that's the difficulty with people. And the sad thing with time and age is that you're, you know, unless you're 16, wow. you're you're pretty much a, on a losing trajectory for a, at a certain point in your life. And and even when you're not, you know, I particularly had issues. I worked, I was, you know. A, a semi-professional athlete, and uh, for periods of my life, and I struggled when I got injured. Particularly, I then kind of went off the rails whenever I got injury or serious injuries, and and it's kind of the you know it's within managing that that I've kind of been touching on a bit. So I guess that's why I'm not massively on the social media front at the moment. I can't find it as a format that I'm actually helping people. Ninety nine percent of the works word of mouth, uh, so it's not that I actually need, we need the exposure and the, the market exposure within that context. Yeah, I guess that's, that's why we're not present at the moment. Or if we are, it's very old posts that were probably not that well grafted or because uh, we were kind of dipping our toes and seeing and, uh, uh, and that's, that's why it's there. I might have to
0: take them down because I'm not exactly pleased about them really, but hey, they're there. And what about Tom personally? Do you, Miss um, having any form of social media, or is it something you're just not that interested in? Ah, uh,
1: personally, I'm. The truth of the matter is, is that I struggle to, like many people, I'm. I'm a father, and I do, and I am committed to at least fifty percent or more of it of the involvement within the children's lives, both emotionally and physically, and time. My partner would argue that she holds more of the mental weight of the organising side, which is true. Uh, She does. uh, And I do more of some of the more hands-on practical stuff. So I have that commitment. I have the business commitment. I have friendship commitments. I have trying to get to my own health commitments and trying to just, you know, I I try and do something active a couple of times a week at the very least. And within all of that, I I struggle with time. It's what what am I going to concede on to invest in these other domains? And I don't really, you know, arguably you can bringing other people to manage that either childcare or somebody else to run that side of social media, whether it's personal or business, I guess, but I'm pretty hands-on. So I guess that right now I am not time rich <laughs> and maybe as the kids get older, th- that dynamic will change, but that's just where I am in my
0: life at present. I think it's a great answer. I think it's, if I was to summarize your answer, you're busy living life. You know, and I think that's a beautiful way to be. And if you can't fit it in right now, it means you've got other priorities that go above that. So I think that's a great place to be. But as we know, the large population of the world is on social media. So the second question earlier was, how do we avoid some of the negative side effects of presence on social media, given the fact that our digital environment if we are on the platform, is somewhat just as important, if not for some younger children, I should imagine, even more important than their physical environment, which sounds scary to say out loud, but I think it is certainly the case with some people. It is. So if you actually, we
1: can link this back to stuff we've talked about. You know, what's essential for all of us as human beings is a sense of connection. We need to feel connected and valued and part of a, a community. Sadly, there's a, within that part of us, you know, you know, to feel connected within a tribe or part of a tribe, they and feel part of an us. Sadly, for a lot of individuals, then it has to be a them. Otherwise, you don't feel part of an us, which creates uh, its own particular issues, which one can imagine that, you know, you only feel, let's go football, you you only feel a proper Chelsea support if you absolutely hate uh, West Ham. So, so to speak, you know, you have to it's a real feeling part of us, there has to be a them to hate and you know the north-south divide, gender divide, whatever it is for people to be real feel like, you know, what we're trying to psychologically is the culture is actually gonna open that up a bit and realize you know, we part of a we can be a smaller part of it, but then a stepped out family environment, friends, culture, community, and actually feel we can be bigger than the us and them. But what social media then has obviously like all of us has both elements within that really strongly you know it can be fantastic for staying connected for reaching out for staying part of friends within that It can also sadly be drive very much that us and them and create its own toxic environments that are driven by algorithms so people can surround themselves by the us and really hate the them you can get all those different sides to it and then with the main thing that i end up dealing most with is we, we saw it under lockdown so you know i was had clients who were you know, using one hour of social media use and uh, like adolescents and then under lockdown typically it moved up to like three to four to five hours and there's some good pretty good research out there that shows anyone taking more than three hours of social media a day are just highly vulnerable to depression anxiety and mental health struggles and the real toxic mix that we see is A lot about aspirational aesthetics so what you'd hear as individuals what are you spending those five hours on and it really a lot of it then moved into i'm following my friends and so what do your friends post oh it's all you know it's all liking about how you look and oh you look great or what you're wearing is fantastic i was like do you ever comment on what they're doing oh don't be oh you're old you have no idea you know you can't do that and it's like, right, so it's all about how it look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you, I'm working with young girls who are getting sponsored. They've got so many people following how they look. They've got companies, you know, then sponsoring, you know, giving them clothes. You've got to wear these clothes and they get funded for, for that side of it. And the other thing they're following is, which is an interesting one, it does probably cross over into your world, is uh, this kind of aspirational models and ideals. So a lot of it had these, you know, spending several hours following everything a particular person was doing, what they looked like what exercise routine their yoga routine what they're eating and just becoming absorbed into one or two individuals that they're desperate to be like and look like and what that does to your sense of your mental health is having these aspirational ideals You can be a little bit might be okay but the problem with it is that if you think about it historically let's say 100 years ago or more you were comparing yourself to what your community said was the pinnacle within your community. So was it the community leader for whatever that was, whether it's male or female? And you're like, they're the aspiration. When our, what social media has done is we're not comparing ourselves to a handful of people in our community. We're comparing ourselves to the most aesthetic or ideal of billions of people in the world. So how we compare ourselves has become increasingly negative because we feel, and we feel good when we kind of move in that direction. I've worked out and I'm moving that direction. So I have that little Hit a, you know, feeling good about myself or i've eaten what sandra or derek has eaten today so now i feel a bit better about myself but the element of it is that little burst is then not enough it's then the next one and the more you fall into that world it increases that negative comparison and what research shows is even if you feel good in the short term someone gives you a like about your appearance or you follow it and it gives you that little burst the after effect is increasingly negative self-worth because you then need to up the ante more to get more likes or you need to invest in their biggest so what creates short-term benefits creates more negative long-term which is you know what we're seeing is one feature and probably a major feature that's driving this increase over the last 20 years in in eating disorders when we look and break down it's western ideology it's aesthetic ideals it's other components and it's obviously the marketing of aesthetic ideals uh, that massively drives you know what we think we're supposed to be like and look like because a lot of it is ingrained before we're even, you know, when we're in our early years. We see TV, our parents and role models are engaged in it. It's very difficult to separate from that. As a treatment, you're not actually getting people to turn their backs on it completely. You're getting them to actually be able to choose when to engage and disengage. It's to notice when they're engaging and disengaging and making it a choice. They're not pulled along by the pressure of culture and element but being able to choose i'm going to engage in that now i'm going to disengage in that now uh, that's not helpful to me you know if i'm if i'm in the gym and i'm just competing with the person next to me if i if i'm choosing to do that and that gets the better out of me great But if i'm doing it and actually it's making me feel rubbish about myself catching that and going well that's not helpful to me is that part of how i want to be is that going to help me engage within that no i'm going to then figure out a different way of being so it's working out when my mind is going to automatically do it uh, when it is again about it's going to get the best out of me in the direction I want to go versus it's, it's becoming toxic.
0: Yeah. And that links back to what you said regarding the superpower only being a superpower if you can turn it on and off and if you use social media in a way of like oh it's quite aspirational and I can follow this person's workout routine but then when I decide I've finished in the gym I don't then follow the rest of my life then maybe it can be advantageous and productive but then if you yeah literally follow everything they eat and what they wear and do on a day-to-day basis then you know that that's gonna be yeah, probably not so advantageous unless you want to literally be that person. But it a lot was, of them it's do. probably a lot better being yourself. Yeah. It's
1: it's becoming to their world. They... You know, I can be like them, I can have what they have, but as we all know, how much of it's real? But the difficulty in our clinic, we deal with a lot. It's not uncomfortable to deal with these individuals that are posting that. So we do a lot of it, we get the, the real line that's going on underneath all of it. And it's that, you know, it's back to that striving, 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 and then breaking down, striving, breaking down. So you're actually then managing a lot of those individuals. So it, yeah, it's being able to turn it on and off, choosing when to engage, choosing when, knowing where it's taking you and uh, and having insight and, and being able to pick those directions.
0: So with that being said, you spend a lot of the time in the clinical practice, and you spend a lot of time in the real world as well. You said you've got a family, you said you spend time in the pub, and all this type of stuff. So, you've got both perspectives of Tom, who works with his clients, and Tom, who's just living his life as a regular individual, right? So, I'm intrigued to get your perspective on what your take is when it comes to the optimism you have around mental health collectively, from like a nationwide perspective and a worldwide perspective, because of I was recently speaking on the topic of health and fitness and thinking that I was fairly optimistic because I was like, I'm I'm helping a lot of people. I'm seeing people get very engaged. I know there's a big community of people who are helping others in the health and fitness side of things. But then if you actually look outside, you see obesity rates climbing. You see you know, all of these different things going on that suggest that it's quite the opposite. But because you're so engrossed in that world, it's kind of hard to take that bigger picture of you. So when it comes to mental health, are you fairly optimistic about the direction we're moving in? Or do you feel that there's a lot more work to be done from that front?
1: What's really good is that we're having more of the conversations and through those conversations and being more open about it, there is the potential for things to get better. But as you've identified, in my experience, things aren't getting better. What we're actually getting is increasing polarization, but we're we're becoming slightly more aware. In my clinical practice, probably over the last 15 years, the biggest shift that I've seen in terms of actually within the, the kind of some of the common domains, is probably with sexuality, there does seem to be have been a, a really positive shift. It, when I really noticed it was in 2013, working with adolescents, where there was a shift between attacking people who would come out as openly gay or questioning their sexuality, would all have trauma experiences. From about 2013 onwards, there was a shift where I was working with adolescents who were openly talking about their sexuality or questioning sexuality and not having trauma-based experiences and actually and a big shift and that shift i've seen continue to grow so much to the point that it might sound odd for a lot of people heterosexual as somebody defines it is not my most common answer probably these days when i assess people 10 years ago 99 percent of people wrote sexuality now people are It's more ambiguous terms. It it is not my, you know, heterosexual is not the most common thing that I write down. Now, whether it's because I work with different individuals who have been through adversity or working with a lot of younger individuals as well as older ones, I don't know. Maybe it's because of the youth coming through and younger adults. There's a big shift there. But it's not that. So that, for me, has been a massive positive element, seeing that that change? Have we seen changes in other areas, kind of gender-based or racially-based, those elements? We're, t- we're, t- we're talking about it. It looks like there are small amounts. There are grassroots. You know, you could see that they're going to be changing those domains. And where are we with some of the elements that drive, you know, people's confidence and courage and self-esteem and some of those other issues? And I guess the positive is that we're having conversations about it. Am, am I seeing lots of change? No, <laughs> not, not a lot. Little bits, little grassroots. And what we are seeing actually is polarizing people kind of setting themselves in struggling more i am either in the in group or the out group and or i'm struggling with that more middle ground that more moderate place both in all domains of our lives and you know look at american politics you know it's it is you're the moderate element that kind of having that ability to be in the middle and move and shift is becoming increasingly difficult for people and probably getting it's beginning to talk well outside of my uh educational and pay grade here but yeah it's uh, it's getting it can get quite big but it is you know that's what i'm seeing both in my that's what i'm seeing in my clinical work really that polarization sadly
0: and the million dollar question i'll try and keep this brief not to throw another 20 minute topic at you what's the answer what do you see being the answer if tom was elected as prime minister tomorrow what would he do what would be the first rule of engagement (laughs) oh wow i i tell you one
1: that should be definitely there, and we're going to hear time and time again is that our schooling is a bit weird. And people talk about, you know, it's like, who does algebra? Where does algebra? Who's used algebra Now, Some people may, but it's like, why don't I actually learn about why, you know, my feelings? What are, what are emotions? Nobody's telling Let me tell you what emotions are. As a culture, people think emotions and feelings are the same thing. They're not. But people have no idea how their minds work, they have very little idea how their bodies work. The real basics of what make us us is completely never taught. People have no idea about that stuff. And yet we're made to do algebra or other elements that you kind of question. Why the hell are we teaching our kids that? So it's kind of the basics of actually understanding about being a human and about raising humans and helping humans thrive is completely off the agenda. And we do have a school system that is driven by needs to thrive and aspiration and, and goal setting. And yes, we need all of that. And there is a movement more towards building that that green system and community and helping kids thrive. Yes, there is. They're talking a lot about it, but they're getting teachers who aren't trained in it to deliver it. And you ask the teachers and they're like, I have no idea. A lot of the teachers at any rate. And the ones that think they know are probably even more dangerous than the ones that know they don't know. So I guess one thing is actually, and it's part of the reason I'm doing this podcast, really, and some podcasts, it's just trying to get some of the basic messages out that people kind of reflect a little bit about stepping back and understanding, why do I do what I do? Why does my mind want to do this? Why do I feel this? And get some insight into that. And then through that, maybe we can shift culturally the direction that we're we're going with a, a lot of the struggles we're seeing. As I said, there are grassroots, people are waking up to it, but is it really being converted into meaningful change? I think that's where the big question is. And I think a lot of the answer is no. A lot of it is talking the talk, acknowledging it, but not wanting to resource it or spend money or really commit to it or you know, in, you know you know not wanting to if you've got a good thing going not wanting to let people into that group type thing so i mean there are lots of reasons behind it but i think that's that's probably where an, a simple element where we start is actually how, you know, how do we bring some of this stuff into education basic education
0: something with, something is telling me that that would be a very good place to start <laughs> so yeah i mean realistically it's the same concept as the health and fitness side of things it's like yeah, where is your knowledge apart from in biology being told what a calorie and a kilojoule is? And like, where's where the rest in terms of like what to put on your plate? You know, why we are eating these certain foods? What is a different macronutrient and what impact does it genuinely have on your body? And you just wonder it's like just even like 10% more of that stuff could go a significantly long way. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more from that perspective of just like simply understanding the basics of who you are as a human being and also how you fuel yourself as a human being. Because if if there's something, there's two things you've got to do for life. It's first to manage your mind for sure. And the second is consume food. So it would make sense that we put those in considering algebra is probably not something that you and I use to this day. But I've got a couple of final questions. The last one on the note of information, you mentioned that when you start putting things out on social media, you weren't quite getting the potential response that you wanted to. But at the same time, the alternative that apart from the book that you mentioned you're creating is obviously going to therapy. And that might be a little bit out of some people's budget and their, their ability to invest in that. So is there any resources that you would send people and the direction of for those who maybe can't afford um, something like therapy or, law, or even access it? Because I know that's sometimes quite a challenge for a lot of people.
1: Oh, it's a difficult. I'd love to say yes. But the, the real answer to it is I've worked a, I worked a long time in the NHS and it's a wonderful institution. But right now it's really only dealing with the extremes of those that are struggling. Yes, there you could... For those, for just general mental health, you've got IAP services, which is fantastic, stands for Improved Access to Psychological Therapies. There'll be a local one. You can call them up. You don't even need to go in, and they can help with some individuals that are kind of having some basic struggles in life, managing with mood, et cetera, and they can then signpost into other services. So that's a fantastic resource. The difficulty, though, we've found, especially with a lot of the issues with eating disorder and stuff, is access. We are completely inundated. A difficulty that, and the government are promising to throw money at it they have been they've thrown a little bit of child and adolescent services but the challenge you've got is i've had this with expanding our team is that if you want a decent clinician takes around you know you're talking about, about seven years to train somebody up to become an experienced we're well not experienced sorry, a clinician to a you know to get to a grade that is a clinician and i remember thinking you know i'd be a good clinician at that point and then realizing that actually i was way off the mark it really in my experience takes about another seven six seven to ten years. After that, before you are a capable clinician. So you're really looking at about 15 years. So we've got this massive growth in, uh, in kind of eating disorders and body image issues and mental health issues. And you're, the problem is, especially eating disorders, it's a highly specialist area. And so say complex trauma and trauma. If it can take you 15 years to develop a clinician and we've met massively is massively like stripping resource, you could throw billions at it. And you're not gonna, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference for 30 years. And that's, that's if you threw the money out and got the people to want to move into those areas and do all the training and then to move that through. So we're stuck in an area where, and this is where actually it's about why kind of developing the audiovisual resource that I'm trying to get it out. It was meant to be out now, but probably push it probably pushing back to, to, to summer, is that how do you get something that's cost-effective that people can engage in and get good, good res- responses? A lot of work's now done online so people can access it much easier in the private sector but the problem with the private sector is that you know in the nhs actually it's probably more expensive it costs the taxpayer probably more money than it than it does to see a a private clinician in the outpatient it's so costly To run that it's it is expensive for individuals but you you might be surprised that a short amount of intervention can be incredibly effective there are manualized models where you can get books and work through them and they have good results depending on if it does fit with your uh, what you need and then there are there are charities and governing bodies that are reputable and can guide people into certain resources so particularly for eating disorders you've got the beat charity body image wise Actually, it's very thin on the ground. There's no, and that's why I'm trying to you know help within that industry. It, there is not a lot of help there, and it does make people highly vulnerable to mental health issues if they if they commit a lot of their self-esteem into their appearance. Um, so, sadly, that's part of the reason we're trying to get help people and get out there and do more. And uh, yeah, and hopefully we can get to a point that we can build our team up, that we can end up doing more work that can actually you know kind of help. All individuals, really, those that are coming from different places with different time and financial implications. So,
0: yeah, I think the reality is, given the answer, that the reality is the most valuable thing. So, that being said, where can we continue to follow your work and know when the audiovisual guide is coming out? And if someone does want to work with you, where can they get in touch?
1: Yeah, we've got a website at uh, the Body Image Treatment Clinic, uh, so you can have a look on there. And yeah, hopefully, I'll have. The, uh, the package out in a couple of months time that's on through there and basically your answer it is worth individuals probably getting assessed and signposted you know it's probably the most cost effective solution for people with us or whatever the you know the service that most suits those individuals are accessible As i said you can do it online and then once you kind of you get assessed and if you can signpost it might be like actually yeah, so you can use this manual you can work through that and then come back so or you can try these guys or you could move into this direction or these have got an audiovisual treatment that can help you with this but obviously you've got you need a clinician with experience to be able to assess and help somebody see and feedback and help them see what those issues are and how it fits together to kind of do that assessment and formulation and then you know and then signpost those individuals into you know services that, in that way, it can be much more helpful and cost-effective, and people can have that then insight and they can choose what to do with it. So, I guess that whether it's a, you know, it's finding a, a reputable reputable clinicians that can help you do that.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for today tom It's been a pleasure, and I'm sure that a lot of people who are going to listen to this are going to take value from the wisdom that you shared today. So maybe a short-term answer is to come on more podcasts as Well,
1: <laughs> well thank you so much for. Uh, uh, for having me today it's yeah it's been great and uh, I hope it's helpful to uh, your listeners absolutely thank you again Tom
0: and that was the simply fit podcast I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for simply fit in apple podcasts google podcasts and spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from and go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.